I love uh, baptism influence style. The water was too hot. It was about 120 degrees. And so we had to get buckets of ice. You didn't see that part of it. We dumped ice in there to try to cool it down so we didn't create a bunch of lobsters before it was all over. But to hear the testimony of people's life transformed by the power of God and to know that it's all possible because of the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who is with us today. Uh, I'd invite you just to uh, one more time just bow your heads with me as we ask God's blessings on this service. Holy Spirit of God, we pray your power and your anointing, the authority that comes from heaven be on this place. May your word be alive to us, God. May we reflect on the words that are are spoken in your word. God, may we be uh, disciples, true disciples of Jesus Christ and not just church attenders. God, may we do more to transform culture than we've ever done before. May we be powerful witnesses of Jesus Christ because of your Spirit. You've said we would be powerful in you when the Holy Spirit came upon us. And God, we, we know that that has happened. We know that, is, that right now in our midst, you are. And may you just speak to us in a powerful and a wonderful way. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Think about transforming an entire generation in an entire world. And that's what the disciples did. Imagine it was just a handful of people, not an auditorium full, but a handful of people who heard the words of Christ in such a powerful way that they were transformed into different men. Men who would face Rome in all of its imperial power and yet not bow down to its gods or to its Caesar. Men and women who were willing to go to the lion's den, who were willing to be killed for the name of Jesus Christ alone. They didn't cower back in fear because of what someone might think. They chose to take that path that Christ took And it was a path to the cross. Josh McDowell, in writing one of his books, said this about that early group and the transformation that they incurred on society. Think about this, that a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so lofty an ethic, so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood, would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospels. What they did was miraculous. What God wants us to do should be miraculous. In Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, we have an account of that resurrection. Let's look together, beginning in verse 1. It says, It was now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. What was going through their mind? They're going to the tomb to see, to anoint the body, maybe just fear, maybe love, but not to expect an empty tomb. Even though he had prophesied his resurrection, even though Scripture had affirmed his resurrection, they went there probably hopeless in some ways. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, And came and rolled back the stone 
In the Greek, in John's account, it doesn't say the stone rolled back. It says it uses a certain verb that says to pick up and move to a new location. A three to 6,000 pound stone was picked up and moved to a new location. And it said, and that angel sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So this trained Roman legion of, of men, this guard, this imperial guard, were afraid of what was transpiring on that day. And the great miracle of the first century is who has the body? If Rome had the body, they could produce it and say, no, we have Jesus. He didn't rise from the dead. If the Jews had the body, they say, here he is. And if the disciples had the body, then why would they face certain death? And many of them did run for their lives because of the, the, the persecution that would begin to envelop around them. But the angel answered and said to the woman, do not be afraid, the greatest understatement of Scripture. Right? I mean, imagine in that scene, he goes, don't be afraid. Right. Jesus is gone, the, the stone's rolled out of the way, the guards have already ran, and there's an angel sitting on the stone, and you want me not to be afraid? I get afraid from a noise downstairs. I have to send my wife to go check it out. <laughs> Don't be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. As he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into the Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went out to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, another great opportunity to fear not, right? A dead man meets you on the side of the road. You watched him die. It's been three days later, and it says rejoice. Rejoice. You know what we are? Without Christ, we're all dead men walking. And when you first realize the resurrected Lord, what you realize is there's a reason to rejoice because death passes to life in the arms of Jesus. It says they came, and they held him by the feet, and they worshiped him. It is what we are to do. We are to fall at his feet and worship him. You see, it was your sins and my sins that crucified Jesus. It was every thought that you have that is contrary to the will and the purpose of God that caused Jesus to be crucified. It's every act that you and I have ever done caused to be crucified. It's no wonder when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he preached, he said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And it says that crowd that had gathered, thousands of them had gathered, one of them responded, what should we do? It says they were, they were pricked in their heart. They felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God and they said, what do we do? We, you're right, we crucified Jesus. And he says, repent. Simply Repent. Turn from the way you're going and go the other direction. They fell at his feet. They worship, and he said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to the Galilee, and there they will see me. Later, in the book of Acts, we find that here is now another account where Paul the apostle is coming into Athens, and he begins to preach Jesus and the resurrection to a city that was filled with gods, filled with idols. And here's what he says, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. 
Do you know that some of our excuses God overlooks? He says, I, I'm going to give you that one. I'm not going to hold that against you. But now, God commands all men everywhere, here it is, to repent. To repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this by all by raising him from the dead. You see, one thing that is true that all of us know is we fear death. We're not even sure why we fear death. Maybe it's the way we're going to die that we fear. Maybe it's the loss of loved ones we fear. Maybe it's going into the unknown we fear. But the Bible says that we fear death because we fear judgment. We fear accountability. We fear standing before God and trying to explain what we did and didn't do in this life. Jesus came that we might have an answer to that judgment of God. You see, the resurrection is a historical event. It's something that happened in time. It's something we can chronicle, not just from the Bible. We can chronicle it from the Jewish historians to the Roman historians to others. We can say there was this event that took place. There was this unexplained missing body, and there is no explanation for transformed lives as we see them. You see, the resurrection is the anchor of our hope. It is the stability of our future It is the forgiveness of our sins, and it depends on, all those things depend upon Jesus rising from the dead. If had he not rose from the dead, had he just died for your sins, your sins would be taken care of, but you would not have new life. He died for your sins. He rose to give you new life. So the resurrection is a historical witness that God's word is true because it's impossible for him to be held by the bounds of death. And so Jesus is Lord. And that gives us eternal salvation. Bart Ehrman said this, Jesus existed, and those vocal persons who deny it do so not because they have considered the evidence with a dispassionate eye of the historian, but because they have some other agenda that this denial serves. Why do people reject the resurrection? It's not because it's not historically accurate. They reject the resurrection because They don't want God ruling their life. The psalmist said, the fool has said there is no God. You can also read that in the Hebrew this way. The fool has said no God for me. Not that there is no God, but I don't want God in my life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential for forgiveness. The one thing we all have in common is we're all sinners, I made that comment to a man on the plane not too long ago. I said, you know we're all sinners. And he said, well, not me. I said, really? And he said, no. I said, have you ever lied? He said, well, of course. I said, well, you're a sinner then. The Bible says that is a sin. Now, you may not be as big a sinner as someone else. You may not be as good at it, but you're a sinner. And the Bible says that the wages of our sin is death, which means separation from God. And when you're separated from God, you say, yeah, I believe there's a God. I I can't tell you how many people I talk to say, well, I believe there's a God. I say, well, Satan believes there's a God. That doesn't mean anything. What do you do with God makes all the difference in the world. Do you submit to that God, or do you resist that God, or do you become a God unto yourself? So we have to understand that, that this thing that Bible calls sin has a consequence. 
Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now think about that word right there, Lord. Not just teacher, not advisor, not good guy, not miracle worker, Lord of your life, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection of the dead. When Paul wanted us to understand something about what was really important, he wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered unto you that which was of first importance, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, how? According to the Scriptures. That he was buried, he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. He was seen then by Cephas, which is Peter, then by the twelve, and that he was seen by 500 brethren at one time. The miraculous. Historical, and it's the miraculous. Ming Wang, Harvard MIT graduate, honor student, he's one of a handful of surgeons who does laser surgery with a PhD. And he said this when he began to examine the claims of Christ. He said, I came to know Jesus Christ because I did not find in science the answers to life's questions for which I was searching. Actually, the more I learned about science, the more, not less, evidence that I saw of God's creation and God's design. Now, Ming is not an average person. He is an honor graduate of Harvard, an honor graduate of MIT. You would never say he's not smart. And yet, some would have us to believe that being smart excludes you from believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he, like others... Wherever you are on that scale of of academia, I want you to know that Jesus Christ bursts all the barriers and all the bonds of education and demonstrates that he is indeed the God of the universe. Last year, we showed you a video of a gal in our church named Skye. It was a miracle of, of Easter last year. She came just last week and we, a, a year ago, and we prayed for her because she had a brain tumor the size of a grapefruit. And she was going in for brain surgery the next week. And we prayed, she went in, and they did another scan on her after we prayed. And the doctor came back and said, the tumor's gone. And she said, what do you mean the tumor's gone? It's just not there. Does this happen? Not unless you believe in miracles. Sky, where you at? Will you just raise your hand? Right there in the center of the church. Mother of, you got four? Three. I thought you had three, but I wanted to say four. Maybe you're expecting and don't know it. Am I a prophet? You hope not. Okay, that was last year's Easter miracle. Let me read to you a bit about a gal named Katie who was at our first service. The tumor had grown from 14 centimeters to 16.5 in just a few weeks. I was scheduled to do her wedding on May 4th. Ovarian cancer, 26 years old. A few days before the surgery, we got a call that we had been waiting for, writes her fiancé. The test came back positive for ovarian cancer, a cancer that claims over 15,000 lives in the U.S. alone a cancer that would leave the soon-to-be-married 26-year-old unable to birth children 
and forced to undergo numerous treatments for chemotherapy. Those were our fears. Those could have been our realities. Our fears were overcome by faith when our pastors, fellow church members, family, friends, and Facebook community, friends around the globe, and even complete strangers took the time and the energy out of their days and nights to send prayers up to our Heavenly Father. We held a prayer meeting on Wednesday night before the surgery led by Pastor Phil, Tammy, Cindy, and we worshiped God with music beautifully performed by Lonnie and Zach. Prep for surgery and just minutes away from entering the operating room, optimistic but scared, Katie was smiling all the way up to the moment when they pushed her behind the double doors. Two hours into the surgery, Dr. York emerged with the news. Her eyes were filled with tears and a huge smile on her face. Despite the test results that confirmed it was cancerous, despite the odds, the tumor was deemed to be benign. There was no cancer. No signs of spreading, and Katie is going to be a beautiful bride come May 11th. Some may find, amen, some will find it hard to believe in miracles. And yet, Carlos writes, four confirmed tests, it was cancerous. Conclusions from two of the top doctors in their field all pointed to the worst-case scenario. We believe our faith caused a miracle for our family. We are a living testament to God's healing power, and we all have learned that nothing is too big for Jesus Christ in his healing hand. Our prayers were answered, and you can be in the middle of a miracle and actually know it. Amen? Amen? Not only is it miraculous, but it's also challenging. There's nothing more challenging than trying to live out the Christian faith. If somebody tells you it's easy to be a Christian, they're probably not very good of one. Because when you really stand for Jesus Christ, somebody is going to be resisting you. You're going to become up a forces against the forces of evil, and you're going to have to take a stand and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. When Jesus asked the question, he said, who do men say that I am in Matthew chapter 16? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You all know that we have, not just this church, but we have a church in Abu Dhabi, we have one in Big Bear, and we have a live stream audience that's growing every week that watches us online from around the world. But I want to give you a story you haven't heard out of Abu Dhabi. It's a story I've known about for the last month, but I wanted to see the end result before I share the details. And I'm going to be very careful with some of the details I share in this story. It seemed that our point man over in Abu Dhabi had received his container from the United States. And in that container were all the possessions they owned, including the airsoft guns that their 15-year-old son owned. When he showed up to get his container, he was immediately arrested and put into a maximum security prison until they could investigate the guns to see if they were indeed airsoft toys or they were legitimate guns. For 25 days, he spent his time in prison. It was a holding cell. It's one where they bring you in, they rotate you in and out constantly. So the the prisoner turnover was constantly going over and over again. You know, in Muslim countries, it's illegal to proselytize. It's illegal to tell people about Jesus. That was the first mistake they made, was putting a preacher in a cell with Muslims. Let me read to you what happened. 
14 people have given their life to Jesus Christ in the cell. Seven men have rededicated their lives to the God of second chances, writes David. His wife writes, he was safe and felt like God had him right where he needed to be, although he was very anxious to be released. Many miracles are taking place. Lives are being transformed by God's power. She said, as I replayed David's words many times last night, I recalled the series that Pastor Phil shared with us before we left. Remember the major life lesson. You can be in the middle of a miracle and not know it. And I can add, you can be in the middle of a miracle and not like it. (laughs) We are expecting book of Acts, experiencing book of Acts miracles in the middle of a Muslim nation. I can say that this has been the most difficult season of our life, and yet we will greet souls in heaven that receive God's most wonderful gift. Do you realize that a person can spend years and years in an Islamic country and not see that many people come to Christ? He said, so whether we like it or not, or whether we feel like God is in control, we love and we trust him. David then writes this, I shared the story of Honey, the circle maker, and someone, one of the prisoners, sketched a circle about three feet in diameter on the floor as a visual reminder. We began to pray for unprecedented favor each night. We prayed. We witnessed miracles. We witnessed signs and wonders. I put March 27th at the top of a frayed piece of paper and circled it. On Sunday, I told the men it was my last week with them. I was miraculously released on Monday at 10.30 a.m. with no explanation. The guards walked in on that day and said, you're free to go. And said, what's the explanation? The The guard said, we don't know. This never happens, but you're released. Get your stuff. And out he went. As he exited the rusty gate, he writes, I walked down a long corridor and I heard the men chanting in English, broken English, unprecedented favor. God had done a miracle in that Muslim country. Faith involves three things. Faith involves knowledge. You have to have a certain amount of knowledge to believe and to understand that Jesus is the Lord and he is the Christ. The knowledge of God, who is he and did he make the world and what's mankind and what about the future? There are certain things that you have to be able to say, I have a knowledge base on. Second thing is reason. You have to be able to say it makes sense. Consider the promises, weigh the evidence, conclude. It either makes sense to you or it does not. You see, the one thing that neither science nor philosophy can tell us is why are we here? It can say, well, this is how we think you got here. But why are we here? What's the purpose for which we live? That will haunt you your entire life until you understand it is God who placed you here and God who has a purpose for you, and his purpose for you is more than just to grow old and have a family and to, to retire and maybe go on a few vacations. God has a greater scheme for your life than that. Science, philosophy, they can't tell us that. Only God can tell us that. God writes this in Deuteronomy 30. He said, I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you. I have set before you life and death. Remember, Jesus put it this way. There's a broad road that leads to destruction, and there's a narrow road that leads to life. God said in Deuteronomy, blessing and cursing, you get to choose. 
Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life, and he is the length of your days. The third thing you need is trust. Simple trust. Call it faith, call it trust. Not blind faith, but knowledge based on evidence that God desires a relationship with you. And God can answer questions. God can solve dilemmas for you. God can answer those things that no one else can. The French philosopher and theologian Pasquale wrote this, There is enough light for those who desire only to see and enough darkness for those of a contrary disposition. I don't know how much light you have into seeing into the heart of God, but you have enough to find God. But there's also enough darkness in this world for you to curse the darkness, to curse God, and walk away. And you get to choose. You choose life. You choose death. So what should I do? Well, very simply, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess. Confess him. Ask the Lord Jesus to forgive you of your sins. If you put your faith in him, say, God, would you forgive my sins? I mean, if I took a survey today, I'm sure most of you would think you're a sinner. I mean, if you looked up and down the aisle that you're sitting on, you would probably confirm there's some sinners on your aisle, right? You might even know something about the person on your aisle. And whether you want to admit it or not, aren't there those times in your life when you wonder? If you don't know God, you wonder, is there a God, what that God is like, and what will that God say to me one day? I've had the occasion to speak to a lot of people on university level when we were in school in England to speak to people who were much smarter than I'll ever hope to be. And I would ask them the same question. Do you believe there is a God? Well, there might be, and they would say I'm an agnostic. An agnostic is simply someone who says there may be a God, but he's not knowable or I don't know him. comes from the Greek word, which means no knowledge. In the Latin, it's translated ignoramus. And I'll just say that, well, you know, you know the Latin of that, don't you? And they'll say, well, yeah, I do. Well, what is it? Well, it's ignoramus. You see, a person who says there might be a God, but I don't know him, is not an honest doubter. An honest doubter would say, if there is a God, I want to see if I can know him. Maybe it is that you've seen God and said, I don't like that God. I want a different God, and it's kind of in vogue. It's a little chic today to take and merge all these religions together, get a little bit of Hindu, get a little bit of Buddhism, get a little bit of Christianity, get a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You kind of mix it all up, and you've got this designer religion, which is worthless. You see, Jesus Christ is either true or he's not true. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And watch this. No man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus said there's no other way. So he was either lying to us, or he was Lord indeed, or there was something mentally wrong. But he cannot just be a good man. So I have to believe. I have to then confess Christ. You know, when I first came to Christ, I, I didn't know another Christian. I started reading the Bible, I read it, and I, and I knew I was in trouble. Because everything it had told me not to do, I'd already done a couple of times. And I read it, and I thought, what do I do? And I prayed. I just got on my knees and prayed. I thought God could hear me better on my knees. I've since learned he hears me whether I'm standing, sitting, kneeling, whatever. 
And I just prayed. And I didn't feel anything. I didn't see anything. I, at that moment, I had just a peace that God had somehow touched my heart. As the days went on, I began to see my life transform. And as the days went on, I began to realize that what I said was formulated into a prayer much like this one. I want to share it with you this morning. And I want you just to bow your heads with me right now. And I want you to pray this prayer if you doubt in any way you know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're uncertain of your eternal destiny, I'd ask you to pray a prayer like this. Let me, let me just read it to you like this. If it's your prayer in your own heart, just pray it. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins. And I want to turn from my sins. I now invite you to come into my heart, into my life. I want to trust you and follow you as Lord and as Savior in Jesus' name. Now, right now, while you're still in an attitude of prayer, if that was your prayer, would you just thank him in your own words? They may have been my words helping you to formulate your prayer, but if you believe Jesus died, was buried, rose from the dead to give you eternal life, and you receive that promise, then that promise is for you. It's eternal life for you. Would you thank him right now for that gift of life? If that was your prayer, this morning you prayed and received Christ. Would you just slip your hand up right now? Just slip your hand up and say, that was my prayer, Pastor. God bless you. Anyone else? God bless you. Just slip it up. If you confess me before men, Jesus said, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Anyone else? God bless you. The band is going to sing now, and we're going to invite um, our ushers forward to distribute communion to you this morning. As you take that bread and you take that cup, it's a reminder that Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins. So rejoice in that as God just blesses you with his presence as we sing together.